0: Good morning, everyone. The rumors are true. Angela and I had a little baby girl. And here she is. It's one of the proudest moments of my life. Her name is Ella Grace Elaine Cornell, After all of her grandmas. Um, I'm gonna try to hold on to her. You're gonna sit in the front row in case she starts to lose her mind. I know, I don't have anything to feed you, so. I'm only so cool boy good morning everyone my name is Ian for anyone who doesn't know me I'm one of the teaching pastors here and I've been gone for a month because we had a kid so this is my first day back and uh, I must confess I I wrote this sermon on one of the evenings that I, I think I slept for like two hours. So you're going to get what you're going to get and not throw a fit about it. Why don't you turn this morning into your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to try to keep myself organized here. Goodness gracious. It's good to see you all. It feels like it's been a long time. I I got like six weeks out of the pulpit, which is the longest in two years. So this is like... It feels like a new experience again. It's good to see all your guys' faces. So Matthew, Matthew chapter five, why don't you turn there? And uh, oh, Josh White's gonna be so mad that I'm preaching with a baby because that's what he wants to do. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Matthew chapter five, let's turn to verse 17 and we'll continue reading here. Starting in verse 17 here, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, whoever does then and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why don't you bow your heads with me and we'll pray into this text. Jesus, thank you for yourself. Thank you for life. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is clear. Thank you that it is immovable. Thank you that in, in your word, in your law, there is everything that we need for life, for righteousness, for salvation. And that I pray this morning that you would set my words aside. It is, it is a celebratory moment, personally, because Ella is here, and this is such a sweet thing to share. But I also want to remember that this is your church, these are your people, this is your little girl. And so help everything that comes out of my mouth this morning to be worshipful, to be true, not tainted or perverted by my own personal opinions or preferences, but only what it is that you would have your people hear, and only what it is that you would have your people learn from and grow into, may your words be preached, King Jesus. It is in your name that we pray, amen, amen. So Matthew, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, as he's writing this, as he's giving us this account, he, he wants us to be very clear about who Jesus is. and He really formulates his entire gospel around this, this one key idea, and it's that Jesus is king. He's not a king of a certain place, a demographic. He's not a king of a certain people. He is the king of the universe. He is the king that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. He is the Messiah that is to come. And he's even, he's even directly linked to the kingly line of David. It's the way that Matthew begins his book. He begins it with a genealogy, which is oftentimes easy for us to sort of just read over and and get past because we don't understand. We can't pronounce the names to begin with. We don't know who most of the names are, even the ones that we do recognize. Um, And so we just sort of ignore it, but they're there for a reason. And Matthew starts his book off in chapter 1. With a genealogy, this is the lineage of King Jesus. Everything is pointing to King Jesus. Jesus is the king of the universe. He's your king, he's my king, he's Ella's king, he's the king of all time. And Matthew wants us to get this into our head in the very beginning. Jesus is directly linked to the fulfillment of Jewish scriptures, which is what we're talking about. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish, I came to fulfill. And he is the king. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. All through the Old Testament scriptures, you see Yahweh identifying himself as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, and Matthew takes Jesus and connects them through genealogy right to the heart of the Jewish people, right to the the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. He is the fulfillment of the Messiah that was to come. All through the Old Testament scriptures is pointing to Jesus, and we're gonna see that again and again and again, and he also links him directly to King David, a royal line. Right from the beginning, we are told that Jesus is of a kingly line. He is the king of the universe. We have We have the lineage of the king, we have the birth of the king, we have the homage of the king, we have the forerunner of the king in John the Baptist, and we even have prophecies already that are fulfilled. Just the first four chapters of Matthew, you'll read seven times in those four chapters, and this took place so that what was prophesied by Jeremiah or by Isaiah or the scriptures would be fulfilled. Just by being born, just by coming, Jesus is already fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. He did not come to abolish. He came to fulfill. We have the lineage of the king. We have the prophecies that are fulfilled by the king. And now we have the manifesto of the king. Jesus Christ comes down and he tells people what the character of his kingdom is going to be. What his people are going to be. Verses 3 through 12, we have who the people of the kingdom of God are. In verses 13 through 16, we have what they are. They are salt and they are light. And Jesus is gonna go on through the Sermon on the Mount to, to break that down more clearly, bit by bit, what that actually means. But suffice it to say for right now, it means that he is far more interested in what is in your heart than, than, than what may be, what do you, what do you want? What do you, want? Are you getting hungry? Where'd my wife go? <laughs> He's far more interested in who we are in our heart of hearts than necessarily what it is that we do with our actions. And what it is, if we are pure in our heart, our actions will follow. I love you so much. Thanks, man. Whew, she's really hot. So what kind of people does Jesus want us to be? Well, he says in verses 13 through 16, he wants us to be salt and light. So what's that mean? Well, it starts with what's in here. The character of God's kingdom, what, he's, what he expresses here in his manifesto is not an outside-in righteousness. It's, it's an inside-out righteousness. What is in our heart will come through in what we do, come through in what we say. And so Jesus takes the law, and he just goes right to the heart. He takes what is external, and he, redefine, he doesn't redefine it. He reclarifies it. He says, this is what it actually is. You think that it's outward Murder, outward adultery, outward divorce, or outward lying, having to make an oath because you've because you've 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 tainted your, your reputation in some way, and so you have to swear by something beyond yourself. He's like, just let your heart be pure. Let your heart be pure. What comes in what is inside will come out. You will be salt, and you are salt and you are light, so be that. It's not just what you do, because what you do can be false. It can be a facade, it can be a lie, it can be disingenuous, it can be dishonest. And so Jesus starts this whole, this whole movement describing what it is that we are to be inside of our hearts, what you are inside your heart, once you have put your faiths into Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and born again of God the Spirit. But he begins with a clarifying remark. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Why does he need to say that? He needs to make that clarification because Jesus, was one of my favorite things about our King Jesus, is that he didn't fit into anybody's bubble. He didn't learn at the feet of Gamaliel. He wasn't from one of the rabbinical schools. He was not uh, a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He wasn't a zealot. He wasn't an Essene. He wasn't one of these groups that were predominant in that time. He wasn't a typical religious leader. And he didn't really fit in with the grid, even with the, his behavior. Matthew 11 says that he had a reputation for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He didn't hold to the ceremonial washing practices that the religious leaders said that he should. He didn't observe the Sabbath in the way that they thought that he should. He was healing on the Sabbath. It was in the minds of the religious leaders at the time that was a direct violation of God's law. So who is this guy? He was a nobody from a nobody town. He was a carpenter from Nazareth, which by the way, Matthew says is, That happened so that what was fulfilled by, what was spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Even where he was born and where he grew up, Galilee and Nazareth was a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Who is this guy? Does he wanna overturn the Old Testament? Is he gonna give us some new law, some new understanding, some new truth? And Jesus says, no, I did not come to abolish the law. He may not fit into your grid, but he is orthodox. He came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures and actually to to elevate them. On top of not really fitting in with anybody's preconceived notion of what Messiah should be, Jesus also did some things that made people really mad because he made radical statements in luke chapter 4 jesus it's very early on in his ministry he goes back to nazareth where he's from he picks up the scroll he reads from isaiah 61 in front of a group of people and then he sits back down and he's, and, he, and he says today isaiah 61 this was fulfilled in your hearing he's claiming that isaiah 61 was about him and their response was to try to actually kill him the very neighborhood that he grew up in they tried to throw him off a cliff He forgave sins, which the Pharisees and scribes said that that's blasphemy. You can't, nobody can do that. No one can forgive sins but God alone. It's an interesting point. He disregarded their traditions. He disregarded the religious leaders. He called them hypocrites. He didn't wash the way that they thought that he should, but he spoke with authority. You may have seen or may have heard or you have seen it written, but I say, what are you doing? Is he rewriting the Old Testament? Is he abolishing the Old Testament? No, he's clarifying it. He's giving it again the esteem that it should have had that was lost in the religious leaders of the time. He did not come to abolish. He came to fulfill the law of the prophets. So what is the law of the prophets? Well, some people hold to it's the, it's the Torah. It's, it's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Uh, some say it's just the 10 Commandments. Um, it's, the, it's the law and the prophets, it's, it's both. It's the whole council of the Old Testament. It's the, it's the Old Testament law of God and then it is the prophets that reiterated that law to the nation of Israel and the nations around. It's the full council of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Jesus said to not annul even the least of these. Well, to have the least of these, you have to have all of them. We're talking about the full law of God and the full law of God can, can easily be, most easily be broken down into basically three categories, civil, ceremonial and moral the, the civil laws concerned israel as a specific nation genesis chapter 12 yahweh calls abram at the time out of ur, ur of the chaldees and says you're going to be a people and then we read chapter after chapter after chapter of that people group becoming very specific in their culture the things that they wear the way that they marry, even kosher meal, the way that they eat, everything is to separate them from the nations around them. They are to be distinct. They are to be separated. They are to be different. And it gets down to the very detailed minutia of their lives. That is the civil law. This is how Israel is supposed to conduct themselves and the surrounding nations so that you look different, so that you are different. The, the latter part of Exodus and Leviticus is all about that. And then there's a ceremonial law. This is where we get all of the, the sacrifices, the animals that are killed because of, because of sin. Grain sacrifices, giving of turtle doves, the scapegoat that's given the, the, is metaphorically the sins of the people are put on the scapegoat and the scapegoat is then released out into the wilderness, banished from the camp. There's the temple or the tabernacle where God's presence is. There's the feast of remembrance all of these ceremonial laws you couldn't just come to god willy-nilly there was washings there was a ritual there was a ceremony that you had to go through nobody could just walk into the temple you couldn't just go into the holy holies of of the temple and conduct business with the lord or be in the presence of god because because we're sinners there had to be a cleansing there had to be we, we were impure to be in god's presence and only one only one individual a year was allowed to go into the holy of holies and that was the high priest on Yom Kippur. He could, only one guy could go and he could only go once a year. This is ceremonial laws. It's the rituals by which Israel is governed in a theocracy. And then there's the moral laws. The Ten Commandments themselves which are God's nature and his character written in detail. This is how you are to be because this is how God is. He's not a murderer. He's not an adulterer. He does not envy. He is not greedy. And this is how his people are supposed to be. This is basically a summary of the Old Testament law, civil and ceremonial and moral, and Jesus comes and he fulfills all of it. Again, he comes and fulfills it just in the beginning, just by showing up, right? Just by being born, just by coming. The Word became flesh. God took on human flesh and came to earth and tabernacled among us. He lived among us for 33 years. That alone is a fulfillment of scripture where he was born was a fulfillment of scripture. The fact that John the Baptist cried out, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that was a fulfillment of scripture. Jesus himself says that he, it, the Old Testament is all about him in John five thirty nine. By the way, I don't think I did this because I was sleep deprived. I think I did it because it just, you, there's, you cannot, you can't not do it. I've written more Bible verses down for these three that I've, ever, that I've ever done in a sermon before. None of, I just basically took a whole bunch of Bible verses from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the epistles, to make commentary on these few verses, 17 through 20, this morning. So if you have a pen and paper, get ready to write these down because the Bible speaks to what's happening here. Jesus speaks to what he's referring to here. The Old Testament is fulfilled by Jesus Christ by virtue of First, just the fact that he came at all. John 5, 39. Jesus is in a back and forth with the the, the 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 scribes and the Pharisees, and he says to them, You search the Old Testament scriptures because you believe in them that you have salvation, but it is them that testify about me. John five thirty-nine. Luke twenty-four, twenty-seven, Luke twenty-four, such a this of all the places in Old Testament. Uh, history or a new testament history i would have loved to have been on the road to emmaus i would have loved to have been one of the guys jesus has been crucified he has been buried he is raised again from the dead because he's overqualified for death and he is god in the flesh so he rises from the dead nobody's really getting it yet people don't really recognize who he is and he's on the road to emmaus in luke 24 and he comes across two people who are discussing what's going on And they're morose, they're sad. They're hanging their heads low and Jesus is like, what's up with you guys? And they're like, are you the only dude in town who doesn't know what's been going on lately? And Jesus says, tell me. And they're like, this guy, Jesus, but now he's dead and bummer. And Jesus is like, you know what, fellas? Bummer, you don't get it. And it says that he took them on that road to Emmaus, on that road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them, and all of the scriptures, the things concerning him. And the only scriptures they had then was the Old Testament. And Jesus showed them all the places that speak of him. Luke twenty-four forty-four. Jesus says, these words I spoke to you while I was with you so that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus says that the Old Testament is about him and that he fulfills everything in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is a sign signifying a future day, a future king, a future savior, a future messiah, and it is Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh with us. In his life, in his actions, also, of course, fulfilled all of this he fulfilled the civil laws the specific laws for ethnic israel are set aside not because israel is set aside but jesus came and he died and in matthew 27 the veil the big curtain between the holy and the holy of holies in the temple where only one guy could go a year that veil was ripped in half and god the spirit came out jesus said for god so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that who so ever it's not specific to israel anymore these laws, these rituals, these ceremonies, they had their place in their time, but now God's spirit goes out to the entire planet and Jew and Gentile alike are welcome in the family of God. The veil is torn in two. Ephesians chapter two, Paul says that the dividing wall of hostility is brought low. Matthew 28, Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, a Jewish man, has a vision of a curtain coming down full of all these animals. And the voice of the Lord comes and says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, remember that there's laws about what I can eat as a Jewish man. And nothing impure has ever come into my mouth. And the Lord says to him, do not call what I have, what I have made clean common or unclean. And then the story goes that, that, a, that a, a, the leader of an Italian cohort, a Gentile, receives the good news of the gospel and is saved. The veil is torn into. God the Spirit has gone out into all the world. And now you don't need to go to a temple. You don't need to have some ritual or some ceremony. You can pray with God right here, right now in your car, at the grocery store, taking a walk with your kids, in bed laying, looking up at the popcorn ceiling where most of us have our wildest nightmares raging in our mind. You can go there and you can speak with the living God because of what Jesus has fulfilled, what Jesus has accomplished, the civil laws have been set aside. The ceremonial laws have been set aside because every animal killed in the Old Testament was a preview of, what, of the ultimate sacrifice, who is Jesus. All of the blood shed was a shadow, was a foreshadow of the blood that would be shed in Christ himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of every sacrifice. In John chapter one, the last of the Old Testament prophets and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, sees Jesus coming which is why he was the greatest, because he actually saw Jesus and he was able to point. John one twenty nine, John the Baptist points his finger at Jesus Christ and says, there he is, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every bull, every lamb, all of the bloodshed was a picture. Blood had to be shed for sin because sin causes death. And in the Old Testament, the substitution for you being punished was an animal. But that didn't really actually take away sin. It was an image of Jesus who actually can take away sin, who's ultimately punished for our sins, though he sinned not in word, thought, or deed ever once. Hebrews ten four says it clearly, it is impossible for the blood of bulls to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. The blood, the sacrifices are fulfilled. The ultimate sacrifice the ultimate lamb has come, and he brought with him, by being here, he brought God's presence. John 1, chapter 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The tabernacle became obsolete. No longer did you need to go to the tabernacle to meet with the Lord Jesus came, God's presence in human form, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. It's mysterious, it's beyond our ability to do heavenly arithmetic, but somehow, the character of God, the word of God, the verbal description of who God is, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, as we see in the Old Testament, became human flesh, God became flesh, his presence here, walking amongst us. And that word, I wish that the English translations would actually do this. Because in John 1.14 where it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word dwelt, dwelt among us is the word tabernacled, which is supposed to go ding, 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 the tabernacle, the temple. The the word of God became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, templed among us, pitched his tent here in the slums with us. God's presence and and living flesh, truly God and truly man at the same time came and lived with us. God's presence came and Down The tabernacle is no longer needed. And in AD 70, the temple was destroyed completely because now God resides in his people through his Holy Spirit today. So the ceremonial laws are fulfilled. No more need for sacrifice, for bowls, for offerings. The Lamb of God has come and he is able to take away real sin. He's really able to take away sin from people. And the role of the high priest also obsolete because Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews four, fourteen through 16 says this. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help and grace in a time of need. No more high priest, no more needing someone to intercede for you and God because God came down into the midst of us and he lived a perfect life. I've said this many times and and I'll, I'll say it many, many more times, Jesus didn't just come and live and Jesus didn't just come and die. He came and he lived and he died. It's not as if he came to earth fully God and fully man, 33 years old on a Thursday, get killed on a Friday and raised on a Sunday. That's not the way that he did it. And he didn't come as a baby born the same way that Ella was born, which by the way, that's a wild process. I was there for that and it was legit. You ladies who have been through that, my hat is off to you. He, came, he didn't come as a baby and then live to be 33 and then just ascend into heaven. He came and he lived and he died. He lived a perfect life of righteousness, the moral law of God. The ceremonial and the civil law were for a specific people in a specific time, specific place, for a specific purpose. The moral law stands and we're, we'll continue that, but Jesus lived the moral law. He never sinned in his mind. He never sinned with his words. He never sinned in his heart. He never sinned in his actions. He upheld the perfect law of God his entire life, and death could not hold him. And so the civil and the ceremonial have been satisfied. They've been fulfilled, but the moral law still stands, and Jesus doesn't just take the moral law and leave it where it is, he elevates it. Not only does he not abolish it, he lifts it up. He makes it more intense than it was before. He gets past the external. Okay, you've never killed anybody, but in your heart, you'd like to. You may not have ever actually cheated on your spouse, but in your heart, you'd like to, and I want to change your heart. He wants to change our heart. He's going after our heart. I have a slide up, I think. Uh, I'm gonna try to not take too much time on this. If you come to the evening service, you've already seen this a couple months back. This might be a repeat for you, but um, it's a good review. And if you haven't seen it, then right on. You're the people I wanna talk to. I'll get to that in a second, because what Jesus says next, not only does he not abolish the law, he doesn't even, he says, don't even annul the law. Don't even try to lessen it. Don't even try to dilute it. The law is not going anywhere. Jesus says, for truly I say to you that heaven and earth will not pass away, or until heaven and earth pass away, not one of the smallest strokes or letters of the law will pass away until all has been accomplished. Not only is the law not able to be annulled, it's not, it's immutable, it's not going anywhere. And the reason, it made me think of this image, because you might be familiar with this, this is a a photo from the new James Webb, Webb, is that it? Anyways, the new telescope, big boy telescope, took took this picture, this image of outer space of all these galaxies and of all these stars, and I'm told that if you were to stand on earth and have an eight foot straw and look out of it, that little tiny hole at the end, that's, the, that's how much you're looking at here. It's just the tiniest little spot in the sky and that's out there. This picture was taken, this is a 4.6 billion light years away, which doesn't really, like we can't compute that, but but God made this. And one of my favorite things about these cool photos of outer space is that like, four, that's 4.6 billion light years away. What's that mean? I don't know, but what I do know is that God is bigger. His love is bigger. His grace is bigger. That's a, that's a spot this big in the sky. God's bigger than that. His, his attention to you is bigger than that. It's greater than that. And just for fun, I looked it up, <laughs> what's a light year? Well, a light year is the distance that light travels in a year. Hold your breath. Light travels in a year, that's 8,700 hours. Light will travel 5,878,625,370,000 miles in a year. And that's 4.6 billion light years away. So what's 4.6 billion times 5.9 trillion? That's how big our God is. That's how immutable his law is. And just for kicks, I actually punched that into a calculator. (laughs) Check this out. 4.6 billion times 5.9 trillion is 2.3514501, a lowercase e, a plus sign, and 22. (laughs) I took 7th grade math my senior year and I cheated to pass. (laughs) I don't know what that means. But the point is, Look at that and think God is big. Heaven and earth, the heavens will not pass away. I mean, it's, 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 it's worthy of worship just to understand that God even made that, that he made something so far away that human beings are just now seeing. And all that time through human history, God was just enjoying it, he's creative. And he's bigger than this. 4.6 billion times 5.9 trillion ain't got diddly on our Lord. He's huge, and he loves you. The law is not passing away. The law is more certain than the universe. Isaiah 51.6 says this, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth, for the heavens will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it also will likewise die but my salvation will be forever. And Jesus Christ said in Matthew 24 verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away because he is the word of God incarnate. You wanna see what God is like, you look at Jesus. You wanna hear what God has to say, you listen to Jesus. His words will not pass away. And he has to be God, otherwise he's a lunatic because nobody can say that. He has to be God. This this postmodern, like, well, I like Jesus. He was a nice teacher, he was a prophet, he was a cool dude. No, he wasn't. He was a megalomaniac psychopath if he wasn't God in the flesh. Because God, Jesus says in John 6, unless you believe in me, you'll die in your sins. You can't say that and not mean it. You can't get by by saying, well, Jesus is a nice guy, but I'm not gonna deal with him. You have to deal with him. You have to bow to him or you have to reject him. C.S. Lewis said that he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. And I'm here to say behind a pulpit that he is Lord of the universe. Amen? His law is not going anywhere. His words will never pass away. So, whoever annuls the least of these commandments, verse 19, and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And you might read that and go, well, there's varying laws. There's some laws that are greater than others. There's the least of these and there's the more of these. And, and yes, it's, it's I don't think anybody would, would argue that it's, it's worse to actually murder somebody than to spread a false word about them. It's worse to actually commit adultery than to, than to think about it in, in your mind. But James 2 tells us, if you keep the whole law but stumble in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. We are all sinners. And there may be degrees of sin in the kingdom, and Jesus even says so. But that doesn't give us the right to just willy-nilly do what we want because it's not that big of a deal. No, God's law is perfect and he expects his people to be perfect. Maybe not murder physically, but you're guilty if you think about it in your mind. That's an impossible standard, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus says this clearly in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. That's, that's uh, the seeds and uh, spices. You, <laughs> the Pharisees find a, a, a plant of, of spice and they, they tear off a limb and they donate it and they keep the rest. They find a few dollars on the ground and they'll keep some and they'll donate the rest. They were, they were to the detail. They even tithe their spices and their seeds. And Jesus says, You do that, but you have neglected the weightier matters. You're paying attention to the little details and you should, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of mercy and of grace. You're, negle- you're paying attention to every little minute detail, but of law and justice and mercy and faithfulness, you have not. And these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So there are lesser and greater laws, but they're all to be held up. He says you'll be least in the kingdom. This isn't, about, this isn't about struggling. I wanna be clear here. If you're a Christian and you struggle with sin, welcome to the club. Welcome to the family. This is Dora Philip. my name's Ian, please stay. If you're struggling with sin, that is gonna be a reality in our fallen nature for the rest of our lives. Galatians 5.17 says that the, the desires, the passions of the spirit and the passion, passion, passions of the flesh will be at war with one another. They're opposed to one another. We're always gonna be fighting the flesh. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is a settled and decided, I'm just not gonna. I know what the Bible says and I just don't care. I can't do that. Jesus in his mercy says, I mean, hey, even if, you're, even if you are, you could, you could still be a, king, a child of the kingdom. You'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's even more dangerous, I think it's even more dangerous to teach that it's okay to do that. As a pastor, as somebody who comes up here with the word of God and talks to a bunch of people about it. It is dangerous for me. James says in his letter that not many of you should be teachers because you're held to a higher accountability. I wish I I would rip that out of the Bible if I could, but it's not going anywhere. This will all disappear before that sentence goes anywhere, and a lot of you come to me, and you've got struggles, and you've got problems, and you're like, well, does the Bible really say, and did Jesus really mean, and did Paul actually mean to communicate? Yes. Yes. It's hard stuff about family, hard stuff about sexual practices, things that are so countercultural to this city that we'll be persecuted and hated because we believe in man and woman, marriage being man and woman. It's what the Bible says. If I wanted friends, I'd say something else, but I have to be true. I cannot teach that it's okay to skirt on the word of God in any way. I can't do that. The God, that ma- the God that made and is sustaining this is looking at me right now. It's terrifying. So what's here, I'm going to preach it. And if you don't like me, I'm sorry, but I ain't budging. And if I do budge, Matt By will fire me. That's his job. Do not annul even the least of these points. And anyone who does is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might still get into the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus' grace, and I don't know how all of that works. But the Bible is very clear in many places. Get your pen ready. There's a lot of verses that speak to reward and crowns in heaven. If you're a Christian, you do not earn your salvation by works. You are saved by faith in Christ alone. That's it. You have his perfected righteousness. He's given to you, which, by the way, is the conclusion of my sermon. It's given to you as a gift as if it was your own, and it's not. It's his, but he gives it to you. You don't earn your way into heaven. You cannot do it by working, it's impossible. But in the kingdom, 1 Peter says that there is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by faith. That's a guarantee, it's a promise. The thief on the cross accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior an hour before he died and Jesus promised him, you're gonna be in the kingdom with me today, we're gonna be in paradise, praise God. There is nothing the thief on the cross could have done except give his heart to Jesus. That's what it's about. But there in the kingdom, the Bible is clear. Paul's very clear. James is very clear that there are rewards. There is There are crowns. 1 Corinthians 3, 8. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. 1 Corinthians fourteen three fourteen. If the work that anyone has built on, the foundation survives, then they will receive a reward. If it is burned, then they will suffer loss. But they themselves will be saved, but only as through fire. I wish I could go into that, but I got to keep moving. 2 Corinthians 5:10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Timothy 4:8. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to anyone and to all who have loved His appearing. James 1.12 talks about a crown of life for those who persevere. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says that an athlete competes for a perishable wreath, but we for an imperishable. 1 Peter 5.4, Peter mentions a crown of glory for those who shepherd the church well. But all of this is underneath 1 Peter 1.4, that there is an inheritance it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and you are being guarded by faith so that you will be welcomed in. And that and that alone is in Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, not based on what you do. Thank God, because it's just too high of an accountability, which is what he says next. For I say to you, verse 20, don't mess with the law. The law's not going anywhere. I came to fulfill it, and I'll tell you what, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I gotta break this down a little bit because there's a lot that's said about the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and just, to, just to, to catch people, get people up to speed in case you don't know, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day, the scribes were 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 men who read the law and sort of uh, abbreviated it, made it made it easier to understand, wrote it out. Here's how you break it down. Here's what this actually means. They wrote those things out, and in in doing that, they made a whole bunch of rules that are not actually in the Bible. They made rules like. On the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to, I think you weren't allowed to gargle something for more than a few seconds. You weren't allowed to carry anything that weighed more than a dry fig. There was people who had prosthetic limbs who weren't allowed to use them during the Sabbath because they weighed too much. <laughs> like this is, these are the rules that these guys wrote out. You're not gonna find that in the Bible. Those are the extra rabbinical rules that the scribes made up. And the Pharisees, they were, the, they were really the religious elite. They, they took the Bible, they took the Old Testament and they, these were the ones that were that were tithing, mint and dill and cumin, and they thought that they were just the most righteous of people. They, they prayed a lot, they tithed a lot, they wore the right clothes, everybody got out of their way whenever they walked down the street. They had the best seats in the house, they had reservations at every restaurant just all the time. They were the celebrities of the day in the religious world. And Jesus is saying, these astute, ferocious Obeyers of the law, unless your righteousness is better than theirs, you cannot enter the kingdom. And that should be a terrifying... The people that first heard that were scared. How is it possible that we're going to be not just like the Pharisees, but actually better than the Pharisees? These righteous, holy men. Pious and educated. Obedient. They had a fastidious ferocity for obedience. How is the average average individual going to actually surpass that righteousness. How could anyone think of such a thing? And, and Jesus goes on throughout the gospel of Matthew, go home and read Matthew 23. It's a blistering it's a it's a it's a it's a declaration by Jesus to the Pharisees that's brutal. It's brutal because the Pharisees looked really good on the outside. This is what we're talking about. We're getting past the external, we're getting into the internal, and the Pharisees' righteousness, or their, their faux righteousness, was just that. It was a facade. They were, they were evil, and they were hypocritical in their hearts. You don't have to write these down. You can come ask me about it later. I'm just gonna rattle through these. In chapter six, verse five, Jesus says, you hypocrites. In chapter 16, he says, you hypocrites excuse me, chapter 6, verses 5 and 16, hypocrites, hypocrites. Chapter 15, verse 7, you hypocrites. Chapter 22, verse 18, you hypocrites. Chapter 23, verse 13, you hypocrites. 15, you hypocrites. 25, you hypocrites. 27, 29, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. What's going on here? Your righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees, but they're all hypocrites. Well, the Pharisees had something wrong in the very, the, the very motivation for their righteousness the very reason why they wore the garbs the very reason why they were they were tithing and they were praying and they were making these proclamations in public was because it was all external it was all dishonest and it was all self-aggrandizing they wanted to lift themselves up they wanted to look good they wanted the celebrity they wanted the finest seats they wanted the they wanted to be They wanted to be honored. They wanted to be modeled after. They wanted the respect and the reverence of the people around them. That's why they were doing it. They weren't doing it out of love. They weren't doing it out of reverence. They weren't doing it out of affection for the law of God or God himself. They were doing it because they got something out of it. It's a danger that we can fall into today, especially as pastors and preachers. Well, he gets a microphone on his face and he gets to stand up in front of people and show off his baby. That's why he's doing this. I'll tell you what, friends, if that is why I was doing this, I have got to answer to God for it. I heard a, a very famous pastor, which is sort of a weird title, but he is a, he's a very well-known pastor. If I told you his name, you would know who he was. And I was listening to his exegesis on these, these, these verses, and he himself said, he said, a couple years ago I came the closest I've ever come to giving up on the ministry because my own heart is wicked and sometimes I don't understand my own motivations and my flesh is weak and I just don't want the responsibility. It's a real thing. But these Pharisees, with all the wrong motive, willingly, continually, deliberately put on a show for people. And so Jesus says, you're hypocrites. Matthew 23, he says, you, you fools, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of robbery and self-indulgence. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're shiny on the outside, but inside you're full of self-indulgence and dead men's bones. So what is the standard then? It's not. It's not the Pharisees. It's external. It's internal. But it's what what God's standard is. You look at the Pharisees, and you're like, well, if it's not that, then what is it? It's absolute perfection, external perfection, and inner perfection. You don't only do the right things, you do the right things for all of the right reasons all the time without fail. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly. You love your neighbors as yourself perfectly. Anything less than that is falling short of the glory of God, Romans 23. You're supposed to read this and get a little bit concerned. You're supposed to read this and get a little bit scared because God's standard for his kingdom His manifesto here, what he's telling you the character of his kingdom is, is absolute righteous perfection, and none of us can attain that. That's bad news. It's sobering news. And that's why what Jesus did is so awesome. And the Pharisees' fatal flaw was that they thought they could do it on their own. They thought they were righteous. Just two verses for you. Luke chapter 18 Verse 9, Jesus is about to tell a parable, and he tells it to those, it says you, I'm speaking to you, who justify yourselves in the sight of men. Or excuse me, that's that's the next verse. He's speaking to those who justify yourselves and think that you are righteous but on your own. You're righteous on your own. You trust yourself for righteousness. Luke 16, verse 15. You are those who would justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. And there it is. The Pharisees thought, I can do this. Their works were external. Their works were to elevate themselves in the here and the now terrestrially with the people that they lived with and they thought that they could justify themselves and that they could earn heaven. And you go just a little bit further into this this parable, never mind the things you do about, it's about what's in your heart, it becomes impossible. If you're here this morning and you think you can earn salvation, then you should be concerned because it's an impossible standard. And the Pharisees thought that they could do it themselves, but they were even dishonest. I said that they, it was external, it was dishonest. They didn't even actually obey the law of God. they made up their own rules. And Jesus says so. In Mark chapter seven, verse eight and following, he says, this, the Pharisees and the scribes come and they ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well did Isaiah the, the prophet say of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, so you can hold to the tradition of men. They just made up their own rules. They read Leviticus, be holy as your father is holy. Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse 48, just probably on the same page you're looking at right now, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the Pharisees knew that they couldn't do that, but they just, so they just made up their own rules. They forsook the law of God for the commandments of men. They weren't even honest about it. I can earn it, but I'm gonna rewrite the rules. And Jesus said, Matthew 23, you hypocrites, you blind fools, you hypocrites. Salvation was standing right in front of them. God's standard was too high. So they made part of it up on their own. They couldn't achieve the moral law of God, and neither can we. So how do we get it? If we can't do it, preacher man, if it's all bad news, if it's too much, if it's too lofty, if it's too high, how. Do we do it? Well, this is why the moral law is so important. We, we, we cannot do it. We get this righteousness because it, we get it given to us. That's the gospel. Jesus came, he lived, and he died. And he rose again three days later. Death could not hold him because he is perfect and there was nothing that the devil had on him. Jesus says that his last night of life in the upper room discourse with his disciples. The devil has nothing on me. The devil cannot point at Jesus and say, there is a sin. There's nothing. He's overqualified for death. He is wholly righteous, perfectly righteous. He fulfilled the civil law. He fulfilled the moral law. Those have, for the, those, have been, have, those have been set aside, and he has satisfied the moral law, and he gives us all of the places. He gives us the righteousness where we cannot get it. He gives it to you. It's yours. Take it. Repent of your sins, confess in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Paul the Apostle said, today is the day of salvation. Stop beating yourself up. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to make it happen. Stop trying to polish yourself up enough to get into heaven. It will not work. Jesus did it for you. Dying on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. It is done, and it is yours if you're not like the Pharisees, if you're humble enough to say, I need that salvation, I need that savior, you look at Jesus on the cross, his mutilated body, and you say, that's, that's what I deserve. I sinned and he got killed. I sinned and his blood was shed. That's my fault. That's my savior. Lord, I believe in you. You have my life. And it's yours. And we're called to live this way we're still called to live lives of moral uprightness but the condemnation of the law is gone and when god the spirit when you confess the bible says you believe that god raised jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and you will be saved and god the spirit comes alive inside of you does this sound supernatural it is this is not human invention this is a supernatural miracle you are given a new heart The law is written inside of you, and instead of doing these external rules and regulations and ceremonies and and all of this other stuff, you become the kind of person that wants to follow God's law. You become the kind of person that doesn't want lustful thoughts, but you'll have them and you'll fight them. That's Galatians 5.17. You're the kind of person that doesn't want to hold a grudge. You'll be the kind of person that wants to make amends with your brother or your neighbor because it's what Jesus would do, and you love Jesus because of what he did. First John tells us that we love because he first loved us. It's his standard high, it's impossible, but his grace is bigger than 4.6 billion times 5.9 trillion. Amen? He went to the cross for you. And we're called to live lives. And I'm gonna go a little bit over, if you guys got kiddos, go get them. We've been doing this a lot lately, but this is just too, this is just too good. We're told, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. First Timothy 6.11, but you, O man of God, flee these things. He's talking about the love of money specifically. Flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, pursue steadfastness, pursue gentleness. Second Timothy 2.22, that's as easy to remember as John 3.16. sixteen. Second Timothy 2.22, 2, 2. 2 Timothy 2.22, 2. flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. Because Galatians 2.16, man is not justified by the law. We are not justified by the law we are justified through faith romans 5 1 now that we have peace with god because we've been justified through faith it's given to you it's something that you cannot achieve and it's something that is given to you one of the one old one old preacher said the only way to be as good as god is if god gives you his goodness and that's what the gospel is all about and we fail and we fumble in this world that's the mixture but before christ before God, we're perfect because we're covered with Christ. Just a couple more Bible verses and I'll be done. Romans 6.4 says that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That doesn't mean that we're free to annul the law. That doesn't mean that we're free to be haphazard with it. But it means that the condemnation of the law was, sat, was, was taken by Jesus on the cross for you. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in the resurrected Jesus Christ, then your judgment took place at Calvary. He took it for you. Give him your heart. The guy that, I shouldn't call him a guy, the God who created and sustains this, achieved that righteousness and gives it to you. You're not under law, but you're under grace. Romans ten four Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The cross takes care of it. This is in Colossians 2, verse 14 and following. I'm gonna start in verse 13. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all of our transgressions. Do we have transgressions? Yes, and they're forgiven. How? He canceled them. Verse 14. He took the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was held hostile towards us, and he took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. Second, Colossians two, verse 14. Where did it go? He nailed it to the cross. The actual list of your sins, he took it and he nailed it to the cross and there on the cross, he paid the price for those sins. Christian, you're free. You're free to worship. You're free to have have joy because this world's a mess and you'll fight sin, but you'll do it because you love the Lord not because you're trying to earn it, you can't. Your sin was nailed to the cross. Colossians chapter one says that he did this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, do you believe that? And the degree to which you believe that You'll strive more and more and more to actually live that out, which is where Jesus is going with this. Cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Gouge out your eye. There is an active participation here, but the work itself is done. You are saved. Jesus offered salvation for you today. If you're a Christian, celebrate. If you're not, repent. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus went to the cross. He fulfilled the Old Testament law, and his perfection is available to you in repentance and in faith. Faith in Jesus. That's it. He's that rad. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for the comprehensive nature of your work on the cross. Thank you that you love us so much that you came, and you didn't just come and, and do some stuff. You didn't just come and give us a, some sort of lighter burden to bear. You didn't just make our lives easier here. You came to save you who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you convict this morning, that you lead people to the prayer room, that you lead people to the prayer room with repentance, that you lead people to the prayer room with a joy and with a desire and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that is only available in our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would lead people to the prayer room with their knees ready to bow and that they would accept the Lord as their Savior today. I pray, Lord, for those who are here this morning who are your children, who are headed for heaven and are just hurting that are just sad, that are just bombarded with all of the millions of things that come after us. Lord, in the way that is unique to your own sovereignty and power, I pray that you would lift those people up, that you would encourage them, that they would have a time of refreshing, that you would remind them that they can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in a time of need. Jesus, thank you for being so good. Thank you for bearing with our our ignorance, with our backsliding, with our bad attitudes. Thank you for being gracious. Thank you that your mercy is new every morning. May we lift our voices authentically and loudly in worship this morning to you, Lord, as we close out this service. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to doorofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.